0: Genesis 1, Matthew 19, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as we continue our study through the gospel of Mark. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer to prepare our hearts. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have your word and that your word is truth. And there might be some things in your word that we don't necessarily feel good about. We may even disagree. We may not even like some of the things that you say but your word is truth. And I pray that as we learn truth today, that you would minister to us, because not only are you the minister of truth, you're also the minister of grace. So I ask for truth and grace to be evident in our Bible study today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. 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 We're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. I know that I have read it before. Uh, We are doing this as a measure of review. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed... He taught them again. So a crowd has gathered. And it's made the Pharisees a little bit jealous, a little bit envious. And they want to do something to break up this crowd. It would be like someone at Calvary Chapel South Bay shouting out a question in the middle of me teaching. Please don't do it. Okay? But let's take a look at verse 2. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. The question of divorce long divided the religious leaders of the day due to one word in the law. I'll take you there. It's Deuteronomy chapter 24. You'll see it on the screen behind me. Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness, there's our word, in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. There's the word. It's the word uncleanness. It's a Hebrew word that means some shameful thing. Unfortunately, the word was left up for interpretation. No one would have concluded that it was fornication or adultery, because according to the law, Leviticus 20 or Deuteronomy 22... If you committed fornication or adultery, you were stoned. Thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there were two interpretations that developed because the word uncleanness, it was ambiguous in its understanding. There was a guy by the name of Hillel, he was a Pharisee, a religious Jewish leader And he took a very liberal view, and he said you could divorce your wife for any reason so fit. So if you ask for over easy eggs, and she served you over medium eggs, oh, you're out. If she rolls her toothpaste tube, but you squeeze it out, get rid of her. If there are not lines in the carpet after she vacuums and you like lines in the carpet when you vacuum, well, well, you could just get rid of her for any old reason that you so thought it necessary. But there was another guy. He was another religious leader. His name was Shammai. And Shammai, he had more of a conservative view, and he said that it meant any shameful conduct that she did. But God's heart, God's heart was to protect the woman. But the disciples, something was wrong with their heart. You see, they wanted to trap Jesus on a particular side. Are you for Hillel? Are you for Shammai? They wanted to divide this group that had come before him. So they asked him a question about divorce. But Jesus, He answers the question with a question, and I thought that was ingenious to end the argument, but he wanted to expose the condition of their heart. Take a look, Mark chapter 10, verse 3. And he answered and said to them, but what did Moses command you? The question is answered with a question. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Now Jesus reveals the reason he asked the question, so he answers and says to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. You see, God stepped in because of the hardness of these guys' hearts and the hardness of Jewish men's hearts going all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. They were getting rid of their wives for any old reason. So God stepped in to protect the woman from them being left in despair and said, listen, you can't just tell your wife to go on the street. You've got to go through a process. You've got to hand her a certificate of divorce. You need to let everyone know that this woman is free to be able to marry someone else. Because listen, she can't just be out there and everyone's wondering, is she free? Is she not free? God wanted to protect the woman. God doesn't even deal with the issue of divorce. In fact, God answers, Jesus answers their question with God's original design for marriage. and He takes them all the way back to the beginning. Would you take a look? It's Mark chapter 10, verse 6. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Keep that in mind. For this reason, so because he made them male and female and he designed marriage, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Here's the point. Let not man separate. In the house of his disciples, uh, his disciples also asked him again about this matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery. You see, what Jesus does here, whether we like it or not, whether we feel good about this or not, he gives the truth of the original intent for marriage. Jesus affirms the permanence of marriage as God's original design. Now, you may have a feeling about that. You may wonder about that. But Jesus is not wondering, he unashamedly communicates, he unabashedly communicates God's original design for marriage was permanence. And in the controversy of divorce, of their culture, and in the controversy of divorce in our culture, Jesus doesn't hesitate to provide God's truth for marriage, so true that they knew what they were saying. Go with me. Keep your finger in Mark ten. Go with me to Matthew nineteen. Go with me to Matthew nineteen. This is the story, just expounded a little bit more by Matthew. Matthew chapter nineteen. Love to hear those pages turning in your Bible. I even like phony Bibles. You know what I'm talking about, right? Your phone, phony Bibles. Yeah. 1230, you're supposed to be the most awake out of every service, okay? I commended you in the last service, and I said that you would get it, and you didn't. My goodness. All right, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Actually, I'm going to begin in verse 4. He says, he answered them and said, have you not read, so he takes them to the scripture, that he made them in the beginning, that he made them male and female. Now, go down with me to verse 9. He says, I say to you whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. Now Matthew adds the clause, but Mark does not. Mark doesn't because the Roman man prided himself on having as many women as he can. A wife, a concubine, a divorced wife, a regular wife, a wife on the outside. They they had women. In fact, Roman women would give themselves to Roman men because that would give them prestige. So When Mark was writing the Roman, he doesn't even give the clause except for sexual immorality because there was so much sexual immorality going on in the Roman world. But here, Matthew gives the clause because he's writing to a Jewish context, to a Jewish audience. And he says, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, now listen to this, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. you got to hear what the disciples understood. They understood the permanence that Jesus was communicating. And they say back, if sexual immorality is the only reason that you can divorce, then lifelong marriage with a human being, a a male or female, it's impossible. That's what they're saying here. How could you expect us to do this? I mean, are you serious? And many of us have experienced this reality. And I know that walking into this subject. Many of us have experienced the reality where we have come to the place where it's impossible to stay married. And we've fallen into the cycle. But that cycle can be broken. And what Jesus does in Mark chapter 10 is he provides an answer that strengthens marriages instead of separating them. So would you go back with me to Mark chapter 10? I want you to see this. In verse 6, but from the beginning of the creation, he takes them all the way back to the scripture, and we're going to go there, Genesis chapter 1, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male And female. Now you remember in verse 4 of chapter 19, he said, Have you not read? Have you not read? He takes them all the way to the Word of God because the Word of God is not relative truth. It doesn't change with the culture or your context. The Word of God is absolute truth. And God is the one who invented marriage. So God is the one and he's the only one that can give us the context for what marriage should be. He created it. He can describe how it should exist. Now here's what my job is. My job is to teach the word. My job is not to teach to a culture. It is not to teach to your personal context. My job is not even to make you feel good my job is to teach the Word of God on this particular subject. And I can't sway because of our cultural context or even our misunderstanding. My purpose will be to communicate the grace, the truth of God with the grace of God on this particular subject. But the Word of God And the reason he says, have you not read, he takes them back to scripture because the word of God is the authority that we're to live our lives by. And he said this, he made them male and female. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, and so are we. Go all the way back with me, Genesis chapter 1, keep your finger there and Mark, we'll come back to it. Genesis chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 26. He made them male and female. Then God said, Genesis 1 verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Did you read that? Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. Key verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female. In his image, male and female, he created them. Let us. Let us. We're made in the image of God. I need to describe the image of God. Let us, we have come to understand, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And since God exists as three persons, and we're made in his image, we are a person. And God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as a person, we are to be in relationship. Look how God introduces himself, Father and Son. A relational God. In fact, God would even say to Adam, when Adam was checking out the giraffe and checking out the elephant and checking out the storks and checking out the chickens, he wanted Adam to hear him say, as he discipled Adam, it is good for man not to, it's not good, excuse me, that a man should be alone. Because man was meant, man was created to reflect the Godhead on earth. So he made them male and female. He made relationship because he's a relational God. He's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, exists as three persons in one. There's never been a break in eternity past of their relationship. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was there, he said, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't talking about the cross. He had already told the disciples three times. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die in Jerusalem. Three times. He knew he was going to the cross. He was talking about the relationship. We've never been broken. We've always been together. Please let that cup pass. And then on the cross, he cries out when the Father turns his back because Jesus took the sin of the world on his shoulders and he says, my God, my God, why Have you forsaken me? You see, our sin caused a break in relationship with God. But being in relationship with God as a person. We get to know people as we spend time with them in the same way we get to know God as we spend time with him, the Apostle Paul. He got to know God in a very personal way because God is three persons in one. And the God that he got to know, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, in some Bibles you'll see 14, but in some Bibles you'll see that it combines verse 13 and 14. Don't worry about it. It's just the end of the chapter. And it says in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let the church say, Amen. Amen. God got to, excuse me, Paul got to know the persons of the Trinity. That God the Father is loving. That God the Son is grace-filled. And that through the Holy Spirit, we can have communion. And in that context, we need to understand, as we get to know God, that we are made in His image, male and female. He created relationship to reflect His image on earth. So listen, couples. The marriage union then is to reflect the Godhead. The marriage union is to reflect the love of the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the communion of the Holy Spirit. What we know about God is what we are to reflect because we've been made in His image male and female. Marriage is to reflect the image of God. No wonder there's such an attack on marriage today. Because the goal of every marriage should be to conform into his image, that we look loving and grace-filled and filled with communion. Our marriage reflects the unity of the, tr- of the Trinity. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say, marriage is to be honored above all. Go back with me, if you would, to Mark's gospel. Go back with me, if you would, to Mark's gospel. I ask you to leave your finger there. Take a look as we go on. In verse 7, he says, for this reason. Now, the reason he says this is, if God defines marriage, God also will define how to be married. And what he's going to do now is describe how we are to be married. Now, remember, he made us male and female. He invented marriage to reflect his image in our homes, in our communities. But now God's going to describe how we're married. Take a look. Mark chapter 10, verse 7. For this reason, since God invented marriage, since God made male and female to reflect his image, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. If God invented marriage, God will describe, God will prescribe how we are married. And the first thing he says is, there's a leaving. A man shall leave. A man shall leave. All mommies... I've got to say goodbye to their little boys. And all daddies have to say goodbye to their little girls. We all can't, yeah, da- little boys have got to tell their mommies, you can't cook for me anymore. You can't iron my clothes anymore. I'm going to go and I'm going to go be with my wife. And little girls can't call daddy when they need money because that's just not what you do in a marriage. You go to your husband. You don't go to your dad. I hope my daughters are listening. And all daddies have got to say, okay, you can go to that big hairy beast of a person and be with him if you want to leave me. You see, the leaving is important. The leaving is a public declaration that I'm going to make a lifelong commitment to reflect the image of God as male and female in the world. That is the leaving. And I need you to hear that God made them male and female to reflect that image. Marriage is not male and male. Marriage is not female and female. God said that marriage is male and female. That's a marriage that reflects the image of God. But the leaving, the leaving, the leaving is the sheet of paper that we sign before witnesses as a legal public declaration, bye mommy, bye daddy, I'm signing right here on the dotted line and my best man is signing and my best woman is signing, matron of honor, maid of honor, whatever, she's one of them. And she signs and he signs and they say you better leave mom and dad. It's a sheet of paper that is the leaving. But I've heard so many that are about to get a divorce. They all say to me, it's just a sheet of paper. No, it's not. It's the leaving. It's what God designed. It's the public declaration that I'm going to make a lifelong commitment to reflect the image of God as male and female. It's the leaving. But then there's the cleaving. The cleaving. She'll be joined to his wife. He shall be joined to his wife. This is... Excuse me, he will be joined to his wife. This is the cleaving. We talked about this last week. It's the gluing together, the being stuck together like two sheets of paper. And what I've done is created a little illustration for us, if I could. This used to be a blue sheet of construction paper, this used to be a pink sheet of construction paper. Blue for boy. Pink for girl, man, woman. Then they got married, and they cleaved together. And no longer is this a blue construction paper or a pink construction paper. It has now a new identity. It has become one, and it is stuck together with glue. It is not blue. It is not pink. It's blue-pink or pink-blue, however you would like to put it. But it has taken on a new identity. It has cleaved together. And what Jesus is doing in Mark 10, he's warning that divorce is destructive to this new identity. He's warning that divorce is destructive to the original design for God's intent that marriage was to be lifelong. So we have the leaving, we have the cleaving, But God also describes what a marriage is in the becoming. The two shall become one flesh. This is the part that we all are excited about. It's the honeymoon. This is the physical act of intimacy that seals the deal. Now I'm about to get a little PG-13-ish. But everyone knows what Jesus is talking about in this becoming of one. In 1 Corinthians 6.16, Paul knew what he was talking about. He was talking about the joining together in intimacy. He says, don't you know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he, or Jesus says, shall become one flesh. You see, intimacy seals the deal of the leaving and the cleaving for this reason intimacy is reserved for after the commitment not before the commitments and i know that's different from our culture our culture we like to do the becoming before we do the leaving and the cleaving We just want to make sure, like, it's all going to work out. Like, i got to just make sure, like, I mean, are are we into this thing? And are you someone that I can be with for the rest of my life? So let's just move in together, and let's just be together, and we'll figure the whole thing out. Let's do the becoming before we do the leaving and the cleaving. But that's not God's design. God's design is a public direct declaration signed by a sheet of paper with a vow that says, I do, I will, for better or for worse. And it's amazing how we never knew what for worse was until after like our first three months, right? (laughs) That first marital argument that comes in or for richer or for poorer. And you're like, (gasps) I don't know how we're going to pay the rent, but we're in it. You know, the truth of the matter is the leaving and the cleaving happen before the becoming. If you choose to go a different route, well, Paul makes it clear. You're messing up the whole system. You see, once I've sealed the deal and I've left my mom and dad, I've cleaved to my wife and we've become one, If you try to separate these, no matter what you do, there's going to be a little bit of pink on one and a little bit of blue on another, and you're actually never really going to get it fully separated. Jesus knows that. He knows the sting, and he knows the pain of divorce. And what he's doing in Mark chapter 10, he's warning about that sting and that's pain. And that's why he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. But there's the problem man. Man's the problem. Now, if you just elbowed your husband. I'm not speaking specifically about the male. Okay, that would be a marital problem. Call me in the office. We'll get together, okay? Listen, the man or people are the problem. He says, let not man. The reason why he says that is because he knows that whenever you put two people together in a room for longer than an hour, much less a lifetime, there are going to be Problems, but those problems were initiated a long time ago. Go back with me to Genesis. Keep your finger here. We're going to come back. Genesis chapter 3. Go back with me to Genesis. We're going to pick it up in Genesis 3. Let me tell you what's gone on in creation since this time. Eve has eaten the fruit. So if you elbowed your husband when I said man is the problem, now elbow your wife because Eve was the one that ate it first, okay? So Eve ate the fruit, gave it to Adam, and Adam was like, great, it looks good on you, it looks great for me, and what you have I want, so I'm going to eat it too. And he ate, and sin entered the world, and take a look what happens. Genesis chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Give them a break. They didn't know that fig leaves were not going to be comfortable. This is the first time making clothes. There was no, like, Giorgio Armani or, like, whoever around at this time. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, Among the trees of the garden. There's where the issue began. Man separated from his relationship with God. And man caused separation. You see, love is a choice. And God had given them a choice. God put a tree in the garden. And that tree was a choice of love. Because he said, To be in relationship with me, you can't eat this tree. You can have everything you want, but you can't do this one. That's the way that we're going to be in relationship. And love's a choice. If someone forces you to love them, that could be considered work or abuse. That's not relationship. So God puts a tree to allow them to make a choice. And they made their choice. Eve made a decision, I'm going to redefine the relationship. And I'm going to redefine it the way that I want to define it. And Adam, so are you. Take the fruit. Eat it. You see, Eve was only concerned about herself, what she wanted. Now listen, couples. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he would write this, and maybe you'll understand, it's James chapter 4. Take a look. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Think about this in your relationships. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you don't have. You murder and covet and can't obtain. You fight and war, yet you don't have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on whose pleasures? Your pleasures. Eve Wanted it her way. But there's a problem that happens. Personal, satisfying selfishness is the root of all relational issues. Personal, satisfying selfishness is the root of all relational issues. But the relationship with God was now broken, which broke the relationship between Adam and Eve. What did the Bible say? They had shame. (sighs) They covered themselves. All of a sudden, they realized, we're naked. And the very part of them that brought oneness for them to become one, they have now covered because man had initiated the divide between men and women when the relationship with God was broken. In the same way they tried to redefine their relationship with God, now they're trying to redefine their relationship with each other by covering over themselves with fig leaves. Now, thank God for God. He kills a little lamb, and they go walking out of the garden covered in the blood in the skin of a lamb. Does that sound familiar? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world he would cover over them as he told them to leave out of the garden. But something happened. You see, when they chose to break the relationship and redefine the relationship, now they're purposing to redefine their relationship. And whenever we don't do it God's way, it just gets all messy with fig leaves. And it does nothing but bring separation. Then all of a sudden we have the first marital argument right in Genesis chapter 3. And you know what the argument's about? They are looking out for number one. Do you remember what Adam said? The woman you gave me did it. The woman, he actually blames God. This is your fault. And you know what he's saying to God? Get rid of her. Now, how do you recover from that, husbands? Eve just heard Adam tell God, I wish I was alone again. This is your fault. I was happy with the chickens. And then you gave me Eve. Me and the elephants were just running through the prairies. And then I had to deal with this woman that you gave me. Let me tell you, no amount of flowers, cards, or vacations to Europe, Adam, are going to help you recover from that statement. That's a brutal statement. And Eve, ho oh, oh, ho oh, she's not going to look at herself. She's going to blame the snake. But God reveals something. God reveals the single greatest issue that will be in every marriage because sin entered the world. Take a look with me. It's Genesis chapter 3. He's speaking to the woman and to the man, and he says this. Genesis three sixteen. to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Let every woman say... the lady's like, I am not saying amen to that. (laughs) Eve, why did you eat that fruit? You see, I personally believe that Eve had already delivered Cain and Abel. She did it without pain. And now God says to her, the rest of your children are going to be born with pain. You know what it's like to be in the garden, but now you're going to give birth to children and it's going to hurt. But in speaking to the women, he speaks also to the man. Look what he says. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband. I know many of you read that and be like, oh, that's so sweet. She's gonna love her husband. Every time he comes home all smelly and every time he comes home all mean and grouchy, she's gonna have food there and be like, oh, my desire's for you. I can't wait to serve you. I love you, even though you're mean and cantankerous and ornery and smelly. Okay, that's not what this means. Okay? When this is saying your desire will be for your husband, this word desire is only used three times in Scripture in the Old Testament. I'm going to show you just a page over the other time that it's used so that you can see. Take a look. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Cain is upset with Abel. And in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God is speaking to Cain and he says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And it's desire, it wants to dominate you, but you should rule over it. Do you see it? So what God is saying, because sin has now entered in the world, sin has caused separation. Eve, let me tell you what your issue is going to be. Yourself. You are going to want it your way, and you're going to try to make your husband go your way. But he also speaks to the man and says... Adam, you're going to rule over her. In other words, you're going to want it your way. And you're selfish. And you're going to want it your way, Adam. And Eve, you're going to want it your way. And there's going to be confusion because all you're thinking about is yourself. James chapter 3, once again, the brother of, of G, half-brother of Jesus, he communicates and he says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, as demonic as it was in the Garden of Eden. And I've added that. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Let all the couples say, no one said it. (laughs) Self-seeking causes confusion. God knew it, and he knew that self-seeking was going to become the marital issue. So we can only conclude from this that when we get married, we've got to focus on our self-centeredness as the main problem in marriage. It's not Eve's fault. It's not the snake's fault. It's my fault. I've got to look at myself to see how selfish am I. And there's only one answer, one answer that solves this great marital divide. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there with me, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll pick, it, I'll pick it up in verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll pick it up in verse 14. How do we solve this problem? How do we end this cycle of Genesis 316? where every male and female now go into relationship self-centered. What do we do? Is there hope for marriage? Absolutely there is. Take a look at Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. Take a listen now, verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, But for him who died for them and rose again. There's only one way to break the cycle of selfishness live no longer for yourself. It's die to self. Die to self. Do you remember? God told Adam and Eve if you eat of the tree, you're going to surely die. And they did. When God put them out of the Garden of Eden, He took from them His spirit. The spirit of life. He took from them His spirit. They were separated from God spiritually. God took the spirit of life from them. Their body would catch up with that several hundred years later, and they would die dust to dust ashes to ashes. But they were separated from God because God took his spirit from them and then they would eventually, their body would eventually catch up and their body would eventually die. Truly, they did die spiritually and they died physically. But then Jesus would come on the scene and Jesus would make a statement. I am the resurrection and the life. What's Jesus saying? Well, after the resurrection, Jesus would come into the upper room and he would breathe the spirit of life onto the disciples. And when he breathed the spirit of life onto the disciples, the the disciples, believers, received the spirit. But there's one problem. We still live in this body of flesh. We have the spirit of God in us. But we still live in the flesh. That's why scripture exhorts us to die to ourselves. And the example is Jesus, who died on the cross for us. And since he died, then we need to live no longer for ourselves as well. You see, death to self is the only way to break the Genesis 3.16 cycle of self-centeredness. Let me give you an example. Paul would say this in Ephesians 5. Take a look at the screen. Speaking to the truth of marriage, he would say this. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. Listen to that, husbands. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So ladies, let's start with you. We are called in our marriage to reflect the image of God. His love, His communion, and His grace. As a wife, there is a responsibility to die to yourself. And though there is a desire to rule over the husband, to tell the husband, I want it my way, what happens when we die to ourselves, ladies, is that we choose to submit to our husbands. We don't get it our way. In a Christian marriage, a wife submits to the leadership of her husband. Now, gentlemen, the greater responsibility is on you because you're to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And so, listen carefully. If you're loving your wife with a sacrificial kind of love, you're going to have to die to yourself because men are selfish. And God knows it. So he puts the greater responsibility on us. And let me tell you what happens. When you have a husband that's loving his wife as Christ loved the church, it makes it easy for women to respect your authority because you're so loving the greater responsibility is on the man to die to himself, to show love first, and then watch his wife follow in response to her dying to herself by respecting her husband. Whenever my wife meets with a premarital, she says three words. Die to self. But that's not it. Not only does he say, live no longer for yourselves, Go back with me to verse 515. He says, And that he, he who lives should live no longer for themselves, but for him. In other words, live for him who died for them and rose again. Not only are we to die to ourselves, but we in marriage are to live for him. We're to live for him. Let me say what that means in marriage. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 Jesus, communi- the, the Apostle Paul, communicates something that's profound for our marriages. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. That's important because we were created in His image, male and female. He created them. In Christ, we get a redo we get an opportunity to break the Genesis 3.16 sin cycle and as a new creation in Christ. He says, go back with me again to 2 Corinthians 5.17 on the screen here. He says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. The sin cycle passed away. Behold, all things, not some things, all things have become new. You see, the goal of Christian marriage is to reflect the image of the God that we've been created in. The goal of Christian marriage is to reflect the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the communion of the Holy Spirit. In fact, these three ingredients not only reflect Him, but they protect us. Can you imagine? You come home, and you've done something wrong, and your spouse looks at you and goes, I've forgiven you already. I love you. Come here. That would transform every one of us. You are afraid to come home. And your spouse looks at you and goes, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you the love of the Father, the grace. I'm going to give you the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And we're in communion anyway, so there's no sense to fight. The Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, come on. Let's just keep moving together. I know you made a mistake. It's okay. Praise the Lord. Can you imagine that kind of marriage? Because let me tell you what the reflection of God in our marriage does. It always provides a way to stick together. If we're reflecting God in our marriage, it always provides the way for sticking together. So couples, listen. The vision for marriage, it becomes a partnership to live for him Instead of feeling like you're a participant on the show Survivor and you're just making an alliance to get through this challenge. And the challenge is called marriage. And I guess I'm stuck with you for the rest of my life and we'll get through it. That's not a Christian marriage. A Christian marriage is a partnership. We get to become like Him. We're going on a journey together to be more like Christ We get to watch each other and the process of the change of each other. I met a couple today. They were married 53 years. And I asked them, how many men have you been married to in 53 years? And he answered, 18. I've changed at least 18 times because this woman has loved me. And don't you want to say at the end of your life, through the thick and the thin, we have become like Jesus. Marriage... Marriage is here to help us reflect the image of Christ, to become more like Jesus. That's why Paul said, sanctify her and wash her with the word of God, so that we could become more like Christ. Now, here's where I close. I need to help you with something. You need to be confidently patient as you're married that God's going to change this person. It don't happen overnight. In fact, the Bible confirms it in Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that he who began a work is going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It takes a lifetime of change. But you can be confident they're going to change in Christ. You can be confident that God's going to work on them. You can be confident that they're going to become like him. And I need to let you know something that when we become like him, something happens in our marriage. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Church, this is the point of the message. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's what Paul is saying the hope is for every marriage. Every marriage. The more you become like him, the more you'll become one. You'll think alike. You'll act alike. You'll be alike. He's saying, as you learn Jesus and you reflect him in your home, watch how you will become one. Therefore, church, I pray that you would let the love of the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be reflected in your relationships, in your marriage, as we honor Christ. Amen? Amen? Father, I do come before you so thankful for your word. And my prayer now is for those sitting here pondering and thinking about their lives and their relationships. And now your spirit would minister not just truth, but grace. If you could, for just a moment, take a look at the sheep. I know there's many of you and as a pastor sometimes communicating God's truth because I know you by name and I know <clears throat> the pain that you've walked through in divorce It doesn't change God's truth God's original intent for marriage was permanence People, sin entered the world and you have felt the pain and the tear of divorce but what I love about Jesus is as a new creation he makes all things new not some things the Bible promises he's the God of all comfort not some comfort. He redeems. He restores. And God has a way to take brokenness and in His supernatural way make it whole. And I believe that that's what the Lord offers. You see, divorce didn't start with man and woman. It started with man and God. Man said, I want to do relationship my way. I'm eating the fruit. But God made a way. God didn't break the covenant, man did. And because he so desires to be in relationship, he sent his son to die on the cross because he knew that we would be broken and shattered. So I'm not going to call you up. Divorce is private. But I know this message of truth needs grace. And I want to pray for you. And I also want to pray for every broken marriage. Because no broken marriage is going to come forward. You're broken. So you don't want anyone to know. You're on the brink of divorce. And this message, it's rubbing you in the wrong way because you're trying to find an excuse like the Pharisees, how can I get out of this thing? Marriage is permanence the person you're married to today won't be the person you're married to tomorrow if you choose to stick in and trust that God can change them the way he can change you. So before you go, I want to pray. Our Father, I do come before you for those that are hurting. You're the God of all redemption, all hope, you pick up broken pieces and you put them back together. It's just what you do. Your truth doesn't change, but you offer grace in the midst of your truth. So thank you that you intended marriage to be lifelong. and Thank you that you offered your son to comfort us and to heal our broken hearts. And Lord, I pray for marriages. Marriages that are falling apart. Lord, I pray that you would protect them from the enemy and help them to live in the authority of the truth of God's word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said. Would you stand with me? Here at Calvary Chapel, South Bay, we memorize scripture. Today we're going to memorize 2 Corinthians 5.15. Would you say it with me? And he died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Our challenge to change this week, no longer live for yourself. Break the cycle of Genesis 3.16. No longer live for yourself and decide to die every day. So when you look in the mirror tomorrow morning, you look in the mirror and you say, brother, die to yourself today. And when you come home and your wife has wronged you, come here. I forgive you already. I'm going to show you the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the communion of the Holy Spirit. Your wife will be rocked. And if your husband has wronged you, win him over with your good moral chaste conduct. And when he walks in the door, God bless you. So thankful you're home. I'll take those smelly clothes. I'd love to wash them for you as I show you the love of the Father, the grace of the... Now, don't say it spitefully. God bless you guys. Love you. Looking forward to seeing you Sunday uh, tonight at 7 o'clock. The Lord be with you and let his grace be upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.